You're listening to the One Investment Away podcast. And on today's episode, we're diving into the crazy story behind Warren Buffett's $35 billion mistake and how he somehow managed to make this one of his best investments of all time. So stay tuned. One stock, one season, one goal to make a 100x investment. This is One Investment Away, where we dive deep into the fundamental analysis from moat to management, from risks to rewards, and finally, from valuation to the actual purchase decision. We're building the OIA portfolio together, one company at a time. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. Welcome back to the One Investment Away podcast. I am your host, Ryan Chedek, and on today's episode, we are diving into our moat analysis and we're kicking it off with the story of Warren Buffett's famous investment and a mistake that almost nobody knows about. Let's dive right in. So here's what we do know. In 1973, Warren Buffett famously invested in the Washington Post, not only fulfilling his dream of being a pseudo-journalist, but he did so at what he believed to be an extremely great price. Just for some background, the Washington Post at that time consisted of three distinct business segments. So they had the flagship newspaper that you likely know about. They had Newsweek magazine, which is also quite popular and famous. And they had five television and radio stations, which was news to me. See what I did there? At that time, again in 1973, the market was offering to sell all of this for just $80 million, which after some analysis by Buffett himself, he found, and I quote, that you could have sold the assets to any one of 10 buyers for not less than $400 million, probably appreciably more. So in other words, this thing was likely deeply on sale. By the way, we'd say that this investment had a large margin of safety. But sometimes things just don't go as planned. And almost immediately after buying, Buffett's $11 million that he invested into this company turned into $8.25 million, a drop of $2.75 million. So in moments like this, I like to take a pause and really try to put myself in the investor's shoes, especially when we're studying their failures. So it helps to feel what they felt, to experience what they experienced. And this way, it's not just me reading words on a page, but an actual visceral experience that I can use in the future to hopefully gain wisdom without having to actually go through that experience myself. So ask yourself, if you did all this analysis on the business, bought it at what you believe to be at least a 75% margin of safety or 75% off what was fair value price for this company, how would you feel if the market turned around and threw that right in your face? So the thousands of other professional investors were selling more shares, not buying. And you just paid an asking price of $80 million, thinking it's worth north of $400 million. And the market says, no, we actually say it's not worth $400 million or even $80 million. To us, it's worth just $60 million. I don't know about you, but at this point, I'd probably be second-guessing my analysis. So could I be wrong on this? How can something worth $400 million possibly be selling for $60 million? What if I'm wrong? So if you've ever gone through something like this with your own investments, then you'll probably be able to feel the unease that builds as you watch the price go lower and lower. Sure, you're supposed to be rational, but maybe the rational decision is to change your mind. Clearly, the market is seeing something I'm not. But that wasn't all, because that wasn't even the bottom for this investment. It kept falling. It was now selling for 60% of what Buffett had just paid to buy the business. In other words, the $11 million that he originally invested 
was now only worth $6.6 million, a loss of $4.4 million. Ouch. Again, try to sit into this. Now, personally, I've had this happen to a substantial investment in the past, so it's not too much of a reach for me. It kind of feels like the drop of a roller coaster. You're ticking up all the way to the top, and all this anticipation is building, and then you get to the top, and you just free fall. So your stomach is in your throat, and you're just waiting to find the bottom of the fall. So you can finally get your feet back on solid ground and your stomach back where it should be. So would you still be holding? You may want to pause and actually think about that. Well, that younger version of Buffett sure did. In fact, he held on for another 35 years. And not only did the Washington Post get back to that $400 million asset value price, but well beyond. And another interesting part of this is that original Buffett, like the Benjamin Graham version of Warren Buffett, likely would have sold as soon as this company reached fair value once again. But luckily for him, he had already met and was changed by his now co-chairman, Charlie Munger, who showed him the literal value of buying right and holding on. So how did he do? Well, the original investment was worth $11 million, right? And it dropped all the way to $6.6 million. But 35 years later, it was now worth a little bit more than $1.4 billion or a total return of 12,460%. Just to put that into more rational perspective for people like us, that would be the same as investing 11,000 and growing that small amount into 1.4 million, which is actually just a bit more than our goal of 100x, by the way. Another reason why we truly are just one investment away. So what do you think allowed Buffett to not only buy and hold on during that initial deep value drop, and then continue to hold on for not one, not five, or not even 10 years, but for another 35 years. And an even better question, what allowed that newspaper to continue to grow for 35 years and turn Warren Buffett's $11 million investment into $1.4 billion? So here's what Buffett knew about the Washington Post. The paper had a dominant share of the Washington DC market. Newsweek held a 30% share of the readership, contested by three leading news magazines. And in 1973, the Post's other operating segments, network-affiliated TV stations, had extremely high barriers to entry due to government regulations. Barriers to entry is a very important term, by the way. As a result, profit margins at these stations were quite robust and protected. From 1971 to 72, the Washington Post company's total revenue grew a little over 13%. Ad revenue in the newspaper segment had grown almost 20%, while magazine ad sales grew by 8%. Pre-tax margins improved by more than 20%, moving from 8% in 1971 to around 10% in 1972. And these numbers were still lagging the standards for the industry, meaning they still had ample room to grow and improve well into the future. All of this with the backdrop of the company's stock price being more than 75% less than its almost asset value. So in other words, not only did they have a long runway, to be able to continue to compound Warren's investment into the foreseeable future, but they were showing signs that they had and were continuing to build a durable, growing, and relentlessly defended competitive advantage, also known as a moat. Wait, didn't you say that this was Warren Buffett's biggest mistake? How can a 100x investment return be a mistake? Ah, oh, dang it, I thought I snuck one by you. But here you are actually paying attention. But here's the thing the big mistake he made was actually not buying more when the company dropped by 40%. And this could easily be a lesson on the power of buying a great business at an even greater price, but we're going to sneak it in right here in the middle of our moat analysis 
because I've already teed it up. So we may as well take a swing. So if Buffett had bought another $11 million worth of Washington Post at that deeper discount, essentially doubling his position, he wouldn't have just doubled his investment or even tripled it or quadrupled it. You ready? Even though his average purchase price, something known as the average cost basis, by the way, would have only dropped by 25%, his investment would actually have ended up worth $37.3 billion, a difference of almost $36 billion freaking dollars, or 35.9 to be exact. So this is the power of not selling and instead buying more when the market gives you the opportunity to buy a great business at an even more wonderful price. However, without that durable and lasting moat, none of this would have been remotely possible. Because here's the thing, the company must not only be great, but continue to be great to generate that kind of return and sustain that kind of return year after year after year. And that is the power of a moat. Which, if you didn't quite catch it, hop on, because that's our segue. So now, like Don Henley once elegantly sang, what? You can sing elegantly, probably. It's time to get down to the heart of the matter. So does Spotify have the competitive advantage it will take to actually achieve a 100x return? Does Spotify have what it takes to do what Washington Post did for Buffett? And during tough times, will we have the conviction, the iron will, and the iron constitution Buffett had to hold on? So up to this point in our analysis of Spotify, we've been gently tap dancing our way around the topic for a couple of days now. So I think it's finally time to talk about not just what a moat represents as a metaphor, but how it directly impacts a business. And in the case of Spotify, if they have the signs that point us to believe they not only have one, but are defending it. But before we move on to that, I need to get something out of the way. Because the truth is, many investors who call themselves professionals or label themselves as value investors would say that in order to demonstrate a moat, you need to actually be making money. Now, what they really mean is not making money, but that they need to be able to keep it, or in other words, have earnings. Today, I'm going to argue that this is not only entirely inaccurate, but it's become an... And over the next few podcasts, we're going to argue that this is not only entirely inaccurate, but it's become an almost theological bias that places massive limits on the returns for these investors especially for those who label themselves as value investors. Just as a quick reminder, in the context of investing, a moat refers to a company's competitive advantage that protects it from competitors and allows it to maintain or grow its market share, profitability, and underlying value over time. So the term is derived from a medieval practice of building a moat around a castle to protect protect it from invaders. In the business world, a moat can take various forms, such as a brand recognition, cost advantage, economies of scale, network effects, patents, a toll bridge, or some sort of secret sauce, sometimes quite literally, that protects them for the long term. Investing in a company with a strong moat is crucial for several reasons. Number one, it gives them a durable competitive advantage. So a moat allows the company to fend off competition and maintain its market position, ensuring long-term profitability and growth. So this makes the company a much more attractive investment opportunity. It gives them pricing power, so companies with a moat can command higher prices for their products or services, which can lead to higher profit margins and increased shareholder value. It is essential for long-term value creation. A strong moat makes it likely that a company will be able to generate value for shareholders over an extended period of time. So this can lead to compounding returns and actual wealth creation for investors. 
In other words, the bigger the moat, the bigger the upside for the business. It can reduce risk. Companies with a moat are less susceptible to economic downturns, disruptive technologies, competitive threats, and even horrible managers. So this reduces the overall risk associated with investing in any company. Margin of safety. When a company has a deep, wide, and hopefully expanding moat, we can get our valuation completely wrong and still end up all right. This is, in fact, the biggest shift that our mentor, Charlie Munger, had on young Warren Buffett, realizing the compounding power of buying an amazing business at a reasonable price. A bonus benefit of buying a business that has a moat is actually the mistake-providing cushion it adds to the portfolio. Because here's the thing, as long as they continue to grow into the distant future, big initial mistakes and errors of judgment get smoothed out by the long-term growth of the business. If you overpay for a company by, let's say, 20%, so 20% above fair value, all the company needs to do is grow by 20% to make that purchase a fair value investment in a single year. So obviously not ideal, but the name of the game is capital preservation combined with growth. Sure, we may have added a year to our destination, and that stings, but at least we didn't risk our shirts. As Buffett says, there are only two rules with investing. Rule number one, never lose money. And rule number two, never forget rule number one. In summary, a strong moat is crucial for us as investors to actually see and realize continual gains with our investment. And with a target of a 26% compounding annual growth rate for our own investments, leading the way to a total return of a 100x investment, we need one heck of a moat to not only protect our investments from competition, but to generate that type of return over time. Quick next level side note, it's important to mention that this 26% per year does not mean it's going to be a consistent 26%. Far from it. It's likely that will be over years of ups and downs, but the goal and intention is to just average out or smooth out 26% per year compounded annual return. A simple example of this is a stock that has almost a 0% return for two years and then doubles in the third. Although this would have been a tough ride to be on, this is a 100% return in three years which roughly means a 26% compounded annual growth rate. As I've mentioned before, patience pays, but only when our analysis is actually correct. You can think of it like this. Your return rise to the level of your goals, and they fall to the accuracy of your analysis. So there are three powerful value drivers of this future potential return, which we'll discuss when we get to our valuation portion of this analysis. And there may even be a secret fourth one that our next level students use, That's a much more advanced conversation. Okay, back to it. Now let's talk about a moat hidden in plain sight. So one of Spotify's biggest advantages is also, ironically, one of the most overlooked. And it's actually one that is hidden in plain sight. In fact, you could say it's at the very core of its business model. According to Gustav Soderstrom, the chief R&D officer at Spotify, and I think he's co-president now, by the way, the sneaky advantage was developed by asking a simple yet powerful question. This question was sparked by deciding to diversify their offerings into podcasting. Next level side note, one of my favorite things about Spotify's corporate culture is that they are engineers at their core. This gives them the advantage of always trying to bring the problem back to the simplicity of the mental model known as first principle thinking. So this concept has been instrumental in the success of brilliant minds like Charlie Munger, Elon Musk, Aristotle, and many others. So what is first principle thinking? Well, first principle thinking is a method of breaking down complex problems 
and ideas into their most basic foundational elements. Again, it's kind of like that 95-5 approach that we talked about, the Pareto principle, right? You focus on the 5% that matters and ignore the 95% that doesn't. It's about being hyper-focused on what actually matters, recognizing what doesn't, and ignoring it. So this approach allows you to understand the core principles that govern a problem, enabling you to make more informed decisions and build innovative solutions from the ground up. So in the world of investing, this means stripping away assumptions, biases, conventional wisdom to truly understand the factors that drive a company's value. In fact, it was the exact model that created the one investment way process. Okay, back to it. Spotify was strongly advised by basically everyone to create a separate standalone app when they went into the world of podcasting. The company asked a very powerful question. Why should the user have to adopt the format of the software? Shouldn't the software adopt to the user? This is one of those big light bulb moments for Spotify. Not only would it help differentiate them as a platform, but it would give them a number of advantages that the competition wasn't focusing on. So Spotify, as we know, has established itself as a major player in the music streaming industry. But what happens when they continue to expand into new verticals, especially when those verticals have much higher profit margins? So let's explore some advantages this approach could bring to the table. So number one, they could have cross-selling potential. So imagine the possibilities if Spotify could use its existing user base to promote new offerings. The users could access a plethora of content without ever leaving the platform, leading to an increased engagement and loyalty. So instead of starting at zero users, when they move into a new vertical, they instead start at their now over 500 million existing monthly active users. Number two is enhanced user retention. By providing a wide range of offerings, Spotify could keep users engaged and reduce the chances of them switching to other platforms. A one-stop shop for all their entertainment needs would make the platform more attractive and harder to abandon. Number three, strengthened brand perception. Diversifying into new verticals could reinforce Spotify's image as an innovative and comprehensive entertainment provider, and this would not only attract new users, but also boost the platform's industry reputation. And with a brand moat, or brand perception, they're able to raise prices without losing users. Number four, so they could get economies of scope. Spotify could efficiently develop and launch new products or services by leveraging its existing infrastructure, technology, and user data. So this would result in cost reduction and improved profitability. They can have data synergies. Expanding into new verticals would provide Spotify with additional user data, enabling them to enhance personalization and recommendations across the entire platform. And as a consequence of this, user experience and engagement would likely see a significant boost as well. The last one is risk diversification. So by diversifying its offerings, Spotify can actually mitigate the risks associated with depending solely on the music streaming industry. So this diversification strategy can shield the company from potential disruptions or market changes. However, it's not all sunshines and rainbows. So venturing into new business verticals also brings a fair share of challenges such as increased competition, resource allocation issues, and potential brand dilution. To successfully incorporate new verticals, Spotify must carefully evaluate these risks and ensure that its expansion strategy aligns with its overall vision and brand identity. Let's talk about just adding the vertical of audiobooks. And to say that I was excited when I heard that Spotify was getting into the audiobook space would be a bit of an understatement. So after all, Spotify is by far my favorite platform for all things listening, but that wasn't the only reason. 
I also happen to be Spotify's ideal customer. I'm a huge lover, consumer, and more importantly, purchaser of audiobooks. Don't laugh, but my audiobook library would more than fill my office. And let me quickly look here. I now have more than 406 audiobooks. And this number is definitely not shrinking. In fact, if it weren't for audiobooks, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. It was almost 14 years ago that I listened, yes, listened, to my first investing book. It was the individual investor's classic, Rule 1 Investing by Phil Town. And that book both changed what I believed was possible and the trajectory of my life. Kind of crazy, right? That is the power of the right message at the right time. I still find books to be one of the best price-to-value purchases you can possibly make. After all, most authors spend years of their lives working on the book and their entire lifetime of experience all compressed into eight hours of enlightenment for a ridiculously low price. Imagine saying to Howard Marks, Look, Howard, I know you're busy and all, but here's what I need you to do for me. Take the next two years and write down everything you've learned over your last 40 years of beating the market and what's most important about investing and life. Make sure it's easy for me to read in a logical order and, oh, could you make it entertaining too? Look, I know this is going to be a lot of work for you, so I've got something for you. Here's $20. You're welcome. Bye. If that's not one of the best investments you can ever make, I don't know what is. Don't get me wrong, I still love to read physical books now more than ever, and my Kindle and physical library continues to grow, but sitting down and reading, especially uninterrupted, is mostly in my past, thanks to our two young kids, and likely in my distant future. After all, physically reading requires free time, which at the moment I have very little of. The full-time job and a lot of time-consuming hobbies, like this in-depth podcast you're listening to, a dog, an amazing wife, our two-year-old son, a new baby, all vying for every minute of my free time. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Because of this, and my addiction to learning and self-improvement, audiobooks are now my go-to solution for continuing this journey. And podcasts, of course. Now I read while doing chores, working out, taking cola for a run, or on my commute, or while we're traveling. So when I started to hear rumors that Spotify would follow the same subscription-style business, as their music, with the potential for unlimited books for a monthly fee, well, I started to get pretty excited. This would have been a huge value proposition for me, and I'd be willing to pay much more than our $14.99 duo plan currently is that me and Jen share. Of course, the question would be just how much would this cost to make it work? And when you go down that rabbit hole, you quickly find out that the economics just don't add up, or at least they don't add up easily. When I look at the audiobook offering at the moment, most books on Spotify are selling for around 24 bucks. Now, this isn't a bad price, certainly, especially when you go back to our Howard Marks example. And considering full price on Audible can go for as much as $70, keep in mind that there's voice actors and even directors in the mix for audiobooks. So they usually have a higher cost and intrinsic value or perceived value associated with them. But here's the thing. The massive competitor and leader in this space is Audible, one of Amazon's subsidiaries. And for now, their value proposition is much better than Spotify's. Consider that at a standard Audible membership, you can get a book a month for $15, with the added bonus of getting 30% off any additional titles that you want to buy outright. And that's their base plan. What I do, because you know value investing in all things, is actually buy 24 credits outright for $287, dropping my book cost to $12 per book. The last time I did this was in October, 
and I'm already out of credits. So you know what I did? Bought another 24 credits. Don't tell Jen. This is a very clever business model, and one I've been surprised Spotify hasn't yet copied. Not only does it have the best value proposition, but it also has powerful psychological aspect to it. Because when you go to buy the book, it doesn't actually feel like you're buying a book. It feels like you're just spending one of your credits. It almost feels like you're getting the book for free. And like I said, some of these books have a list price of $70. So you feel like you're really getting an amazing deal. Add in the fact that you get to keep the book forever and can listen to it at any time, the perceived value increases. Even if you just assigned a $24 value to each book in my library right now, it's an asset worth roughly $10,000. Luckily for me, as you already know, I'm a value investor. So the most I've ever paid for an audiobook is $14.95. It's probably for the best that we don't redo the math here, but suffice it to say, I've certainly had an excellent return on my investment. But that's not all. Remember when we talked about Apple's anti-competitive practice? How they currently take a 30% cut just for the pleasure of being on the App Store on their iPhone? Well, Amazon's Audible have found a clever way to sidestep this egregious fee, having you buy the credits through the Amazon site and circumventing Apple altogether. It's still a pain in the butt to buy a book on Audible through an iPhone if you don't have any credits. But when your account is topped up with credits, like mine currently is, the user experience is excellent. So I have high hopes that Spotify follows their lead. In fact, I hope they have a plan to offer an even more compelling user experience. After all, I'd rather be putting my $744 plus dollars into a business I own. Maybe I should buy some shares of Amazon as well. According to Daniel Eck, they're planning on going after it like they did with podcasts, which they grew from 500,000 in 2018 to being the industry leader with now over 5 million podcasts today. 70% of which are hosted by the podcasting platform Anchor, which by the way, Spotify owns and which actually I host my podcast on there as well. Think about this from the business perspective with Spotify. So in real terms, me as an ideal client for Spotify is worth to them an ARPU of $62 if they're able to capture all my audiobook spend inside of Spotify. So remember that ARPU is actually the monthly revenue per user. So this would net out to a minimum of $744 for annual revenue from just me as a user. So now if we look at the average annual revenue per user for audiobooks, we find that this comes in at $157. Compare that to Spotify's current annual ARPU of around $54 for premium users, and you can see why moving into audiobook market is a good choice for them. I had to pause here and dig up the expected margin number because I thought Daniel mentioned it around 40%, and that's exactly right. But then I found two interesting things while combing through the Investor's Day transcript. The first is this quote from CEO Daniel Eck about their move into audiobooks. So he says this, And this third vertical of audiobooks further builds on our ambitions to be the destination for creators. While it's still early, we expect audiobooks to have healthy margins above 40% and be highly accretive to the business. And here again, we apply the same differentiating foundations of ubiquity, personalization, and freemium to attract both creators and users and drive engagement. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but freemium is still part of the plan. So this triggered a memory in my brain about something to do with ads. So I had to dig up that to be sure. And it looks like Don Ostroff, the head of monetization at Spotify, mentioned offhandedly that they are looking at introducing ads into audiobooks. 
So here's what she said. We're also starting to explore how we can increase our supply of inventory to meet the incredible demand that we're seeing. We're looking at bringing ad monetization into audiobooks, video podcasts, and unlocking more ad-supported music listening as we continue to innovate across our free tier. So there are obviously a number of different ways to do this, but this could be the way to offer free audiobooks to people as long as they're okay with ads. Maybe a subscription is still in the future playlist for Spotify. Only time will tell, but my hopes are back up. Now, not everyone has the budget or the crazy appetite for books like I do, but just think about what that does for Spotify's potential as a business. This is what they mean when they say they are going into different verticals, and that helps uncap that revenue potential. Quick next level side note. Thanks to me being so slow at actually recording these episodes for you from my research, we actually now know that part of Spotify's plan for the audiobook rollout, and it's pretty exciting. And we just found out that every single premium user will soon have access to 15 hours of audiobooks for free, included inside their subscription to Spotify. And then if they want to add 10 more hours, I think it's a $9.99 bump up. So you get to bump up your time instead of with a token. So if we think of this from a leading competitor's perspective, Spotify just added a minimum of $14.95 worth of value to their subscription service for all their users for free, making Spotify an even better value proposition for their users and may even be hinting at one of the all-time most powerful moats that I always hope to invest in, and that is scaled economies shared. But we'll get to that later. Okay, back to it. The big question will be, how much of the market are they able to actually sneak away from the giant that is Audible? Because if they can do this, even just one user like me at a time, well, it may be the clear path to them actually achieving their big audacious goal of generating $100 in annual revenue for each and every user and further solidifying that Spotify machine that could lead them to that big audacious goal of $100 billion in annual revenue. So you may have noticed that I'm a bit stuffed up today and our entire family is actually fighting a fun cold. So I'm going to give my voice a rest and call it here for today. As always, thank you so much for listening and going on this crazy journey with me. And I'll talk to you again in the next episode. And of course, don't forget, you're just one investment away. Let's go find it. As a reminder, do your own due diligence. All investment decisions are yours to make. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. This is not financial advice. I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary.